Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 164, Don't Be a Hater. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. You can visit Knitting Out Loud and see their entire catalog at knittingoutloud.com. Also, Knit Circus, the online magazine, offers three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find the free spring issue at www.knitcircus.com. Also, holiday travel and craftlet take you to London, Bath, and Wales. You can find out more about joining the fun by visiting craftlet.com and clicking on the lovely holiday travel link in the upper right-hand corner. Hi there. I hope you have had a great week. I have had a great week. I can't remember most of it, but then that's probably one of the reasons why it was great. It just kind of scooted by and work got done and all sorts of things. So that was pretty cool. I have continued not to be polygamously crafty this week because I'm still working on uh, on the finishing the design for the sock, but it's almost done and I'm doing it for a size shoe smaller than myself. So I'm kind of on hold right now waiting for my mom to try this lock on tonight. And then I'll be able to finish the darn thing and get back to my regular multi-crafty life, which I am quite looking forward to. One of the other things that's been taking up a lot of my crafting time, a lot of my crafting time, is a different kind of craftiness, which we've talked about before, and that's cooking. This whole gluten-free thing requires a lot more cooking. Um, if you want to have normal food, because you really can't always, like, you can't really get gluten-free pasta out in the world unless you go to a very special restaurant. So, sure, you know, I mean, I'm learning how to do stuff, uh, which is fine. It's always good to learn new things, right? And the bread baking is going along swimmingly. Nobody's complaining. Although every once in a while, my husband does sneak in a loaf of regular, like, multigrain whole wheat bread just to fulfill that need I have not found myself craving wheat stuff much at all, except, and I wouldn't be surprised if some other of you had had this situation happen to you too, cream of wheat. Cream of wheat, you can't, it's like in the name, you can't eat cream of wheat if you can't have wheat, right? So I know what you're thinking, you're thinking, well, there's cream of rice. And I'd been, I'd been resistant, I admit it, stubbornly resistant, thinking, oh, it can't possibly be that good. But here's my thing. My husband and I, this might actually be the only place that we ever truly disagree, like disagree to the point where we will make separate dinners or lunches. Um, <clears throat> I believe that things like tomato soup and cream of wheat and... Oh, I don't know, there has to be another one, like cream of broccoli, that those, those kinds of soups really should be made with milk rather than with water. Um, even oatmeal, I find like a really good porridge, if I make it with milk or half milk and half cream, it just comes out so much better, more flavorful, richer, thicker, all the good stuff, right? He makes his tomato soup with water, and to me, it looks like you're eating kind of pink, dark pink, russet water, 
And I, I'm completely freaked out by that. And I know that this is just, you know, how, how we were raised. My mom made with milk and his made with water. And, and truly, never the twain shall meet. We really do not agree on that one. So I was, I was hesitant about the cream of rice thing just because I thought, mm, could it possibly be as good as cream of wheat? And the answer... The answer goes like this. If you make it with milk, it's really pretty good. I'm, I'm finding with milk and a little bit of brown sugar, it actually doesn't taste any different, largely, from cream of wheat. So, yay, more happiness. I'm just, I'm just very, you know, I'm feeling very satisfied with everything right now. If, if I could find work, then it would be that much more satisfying. But until that time, we'll just, you know, keep plugging along, thinking positive thoughts, and, uh, hoping for the best. I've been applying for a lot of online writing jobs over the last week. A friend of mine here, a friend of mine here who, who also does the, the same kind of writing that I do, uh, lots of different kinds of writing, plus a lot of edu educational writing. She and I have been uh, combining forces and, and teaming up, and that has been very good, except that when you work this way, it can be months before you get paid. And that is appalling. So uh, life is tenuous, but happy. So, you know, I think on, on balance, you kind of can't complain. So that's fine. Especially not if you have cream of wheat. I know I'm going to get emails back from you on the water versus milk thing. And I'm going to start tallying the vote. And I'll let you know next week whether Craftlet listeners prefer milk or water when they're making cream of wheat or tomato soup. I'm fascinated. I hope you're all on my side. I hope I can show my husband that he's wrong, but I, I have a horrible sinking feeling that it's, it's going to come back and I'm, I'm going to be the one who loses. And, and, and then maybe I have to decide whether I show him the, <laughs> the results or not. I'll be honest. I'll be honest. I'll show him, especially if I win. No, I'll be good. I think. So on, on the, the, uh, the work side of things, a very interesting thing happened over the last week, which I haven't told you about because I haven't talked to you for a week. I was approached by the September 11th Memorial Museum to help them write, along with the United Federation of Teachers in New York, curriculum that teachers around the country could use for teaching about September 11th. This is obviously kind of an interesting thing, and it's, uh, it becomes more and more interesting and more and more actually problematic the further away from the actual event we get. Here's the interesting thing. What they want, and I think it's a marvelous idea, is they want standalone, um, it, it's, a, it's a unit of five lessons, but they could also be used as standalone lessons you know, for, for a day for uh i'm working on the the middle and high school team and then other people are working on the, the elementary school team but we had to kind of decide well you know what do you want kids to walk away from a unit on september 11th with what do you want them to learn and understand and, and be able to do with the knowledge that they've gained and so yesterday we had a, a really interesting conversation about you know where where you go with this but the really fascinating part and I, I have to, I have to be very honest with you. I've been 
uh, quite disturbed and trying not to pay attention to the lack of, oh, I don't know, cojones behind the people who are dealing with rebuilding on the World Trade Center site. I was really very happy with it just being a big park and the whole Freedom Tower thing I could have taken or leave, but taken or left. But the the acreage of the site itself, um, they've done a, a crazy remarkable job dismantling the wreckage of the World Trade Center. In fact, I had forgotten until yesterday that the, the last um, pillar, which was one of the steel internal reinforcing wall pillars, which had to be, jeepers, it had to be, I don't know, five or six feet wide and three or four feet deep. And it was, you know, steel. Um, it had to be, I'm looking at my hands, it had to be about two inches thick all the way around. So it was hollow in the middle. Um, and it was one of the columns, I think one of the columns that actually had, had asbestos on it uh, originally. But this was the, the thing that as they dug down and started to clear out all the, the debris and the twisted stuff and the molten stuff and things like that, they, uh, they kept exposing parts of this. And they, they had assumed that they were going to find bodies in this location. And I don't think they did. Um, actually, that's not true. They did. Um, not like next to the pillar, but in that area, we, saw, we actually saw them taking um, remains out on a number of occasions from my classroom window. But as they dug down, all the different uh, fire companies and squads and people who'd been involved with uh, uh, trying to re recover, well, what, whatever they could recover, um, they had spray painted their squad numbers and unit numbers all the way down on this pillar. And we, we watched, it was really quite remarkable. They, um, you know, I guess took welders and they, they cut the bottom of the pillar. And then the next day they lowered it very ceremoniously with a crane onto a flatbed truck and they draped it in the United States flag and they, they drove it out with, with quite a bit of ceremony because that really signaled the end of the dismantling and the building of the beginning of the reconstruction, which, you know, was amazing to watch. I had forgotten that that was May 23rd. That wasn't even a year. That was May 23rd, 2002. That wasn't even a year after the towers came down. The guys who were responsible for dismantling that wreckage did... I don't even know how to begin to describe the remarkable nature of that cleanup. Those men all deserve medals. They, they were just sober and focused and relentless. And I think they did work 24 hours a day. I think they were working um, eight eight-hour shifts uh, just to get the thing done. And they did. It was the first time in New York City that anything's moved that fast. It was great. And then the rebuilding started-ish. And of course, the first thing that they were, had to do was they had to reinforce the slurry wall. That was the wall on the west side that was keeping the Hudson River out. And that's kind of important. <laughs> you know, little, little thing like the Hudson River. And then uh, they had to rebuild the PATH train. That's the train that goes from lower Manhattan to New Jersey. And the, uh, the original hub had been inside the World Trade Center concourse down, down on the lower levels. Well, the last time I visited New York, which was almost a year ago, the PATH train was back up again and uh, the transit hub was working and they had kind of a nice entrance to it. But what you could see from the top, from where um, my, my company's offices were, they looked down on the pit from the east. So they're in one Liberty Plaza looking down, looking towards the west, down on the pit. 
which isn't much of a pit anymore, uh, you could see that all the train stuff was working. And in fact, in little holes in between the construction, you could actually see the trains coming in and out, which was really kind of cool. But the, the upper level, the top stuff, the stuff that you see just looking down was still just a wreck. Um, I, I mean, they were clearly building on it, but it was still um, dusty and it looked kind of disorganized and you couldn't really tell if they were doing anything. Well, long story long, the, the nice thing to know is the Memorial Park the September 11th Memorial Museum people. They are spectacular and they are wonderful. And I had vague memories of this design being floated by uh, years ago when the designs first came in. But I, I think they must have combined a couple of different ideas because uh, I didn't remember it exactly the way that it is turning out to be. I think they said it's going to be a July 2011 opening which means they have a lot of work to do. But here's the good news. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's wisely done. It's um, moving. If you've ever been to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., I, I, I found myself thinking that there were similarities, which makes sense, you know, um, just in tone and kind of visual rhetoric and what you want to be able to say to people um, by, by the way that they move through the museum, uh, what, what you want them to, to leave with. They have done a ridiculous amount of work and they, they are treating everything, everything as an artifact. Well, we got to see some pictures of some of the artifacts that they have. And there, there was one, one picture of a hanger out at JFK, a, a hanger. You know, you have to keep in mind that this stuff is all being kept in hangers. And I'm not going to tell you all about all of the things. For one thing, it would take me days. And for another thing, I want you to be surprised when you get there. But some of the stuff that I don't think you're going to see is the cars. They saved cars. Whatever cars they could save that were identifiable as cars. That included the emergency vehicles, the rescue vehicles. And I was looking at the vehicles and I said, do they know where they picked those vehicles up? Do they know where they got that fire truck from? Because one of the things that I remember from that day was that um, fire trucks were coming in from Brooklyn up from um, the, the tunnel and they were parking over on the West Side Highway and then other trucks were coming in and parking on our street on Trinity and Church. And I've been fairly convinced for the last eight and a half years that when the towers came down, a number of people were killed just because they weren't near those trucks. And the, the trucks had to have been flattened. And the answer is yes, parts of them. Parts of them were completely flattened. Some of them were just uh, massively damaged. There were some police cars that had hoods dented in or police cars that had roofs dented in. Some of them were still just merely dusty. And I say merely in quotation marks. There was one car in the front that I... I would be challenged to tell you what kind of car it was. Two-door, four-door truck, I have no idea. It was really just a frame that had been smooshed. And uh, it was just amazing how much stuff they have collected and saved and, and things that people have sent them and given them pictures that people have sent them and given them. And I, I started showing them uh, some of the pictures that, that I had had just sitting around. One picture that one of my students took 
that I've never seen a, a similar shot from uh, looking from the south from where we were evacuating up to the southern edge of the south tower and they said they hadn't seen pictures like that either so they're probably going to use that somewhere and uh yeah it, it was just phenomenal so the long story short part about the curriculum is this we need to be able to write curriculum for people who don't necessarily get to see the museum but you know, we want the students to walk away with kind of a broader understanding of September 11th. Well, one of the lovely things is a lot of stuff is online. StoryCorps has been working with the September 11th Memorial Museum people to uh, record histories of people who were there, people who evacuated, people who rescued people, um, people who lost family members, all of that. And uh, a lot of the digital archives are obviously because they're digital online. And, um, and so I, you know, for the next month, I am going to be really uh, diving back into what it was like, which is good in one way, because I've been working on a, a story that takes place right after that. And it's hard. It's hard to remember. My husband handed me the um, Spiegelman uh, comic book in the shadow of no towers which is beautiful and if you've never seen it you really should and then of course we have the philippe petit book um the man who walked between the towers which is a, a children's book which is also just beautiful and it, it handles 9-11 just beautifully uh, i always choke up at the end but it's beautifully beautifully done you i choke up the right way the way you should choke up uh so it's 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 gonna be interesting and I'm, I'm reluctant to go there again, but I really, I need to. I need to remember what it was like. So I'm going to be emailing with some of my students who I evacuated with and, and talking to them about what they remember and, and, um, and finding out what they think kids today should know. Because, of course, for kids today, it's ancient history. My, my college students were so young when... The attack happened. It's it's remarkable how quickly time moves by. And I know that is so trite, but it's so true. I mean, my thing one is about to be 10. How did that happen? I, blah, I have no idea. So this actually all does <laughs> disaster strikes kind of relate to persuasion. No, that's that's really a stretch. That's not much of a segue. And that's not entirely true. But before we get to persuasion, I need to announce that if you have an iPhone or an iTouch and have not yet gotten the Craftlit iPhone app, you should know that it is available and that there are extras that are uploaded with each episode onto the iPhone app. And then the next week, I release those extras to everyone else on the website. So everybody gets access to the, the same things. The iPhone people get it first, which, which honestly has turned out to be a really good thing because on occasion, there has been a mistake in one of the patterns or in uh, one of the, the bits that I've released and people have been able to contact me before I release it to the masses. So, so in that respect, it's been, it's been very good having a troop of, of iTouch and iPhone proofreaders. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, this week, though, we have a new pattern from our very own Erica Hernandez, who is, uh, she's been on, 
She's been uh, published in Nitty.com. She wrote a, a beautiful, heartbreaking article there. And she and I have been corresponding for eons at this point. She's a test knitter. She's an amazing mother. And, um, and she has designed a dishcloth named Adri's uh, dishcloth, Adri's Butterfly. This is for her sister-in-law, Adriana, who loves dishcloths. This is a beautiful one. It has a little butterfly on it. There are all sorts of variations on the theme, different ways, uh, different weights of yarn that you could use and things like that. I think you're going to love it. It's really quite lovely. So that is going out this week and it'll be up next week on the show notes. So we're very excited about that. So Adri's is going to be in the show notes for this week for episode 164 on the iPhone. And then next week it will be released as a standalone on the website. If you've gone to the website lately, craftlit.com, you will notice that it's it should be loading faster and that it's changed quite a bit. I have been trying to clean it up and offload bits and pieces of it to other pages that means that more clicking will be need to be will need to be done if you need to get to extra information but uh it also makes i think the first page a little bit cleaner the the newspaper layout works very well on a big screen and it's more complicated on a small screen so i you know i'm trying to work back and forth with it because i i like the newspaper attitude for um for craftlet because we're you know we're not just a knitting news podcast there's more to it just like you know the new york times is more than just the front page there's the new york times magazine there's the book review there's uh, dunesbury <laughs> no there's not so i i'm working on it i'm trying in my spare time but it is getting better and and uh and the buttons to the patterns are now at the bottom of the page which is much easier to get to now i've changed all that stuff around so do visit the page let me know if you have any other ideas or or anything you would like to see put back on the front page because uh, i can i can also do that so persuasion persuasion let's talk about persuasion for a moment shall we oh. Every once in a while, that just happens. I don't seem to be able to control it very much. So today we're going to do chapters 9 and 10. We are cruising through this book. And I'm excited about that because we're getting to the good parts. Uh, un unlike uh, chapters that are, you know, pretty much fully expositional chapters, we are moving into the actual action now and uh, a couple of things a couple of things happen that you need to pay attention to but there's also some stuff that Jane Austen is doing that I think is really interesting I was just reading oh something about her online I've been reading a lot about her online but uh one of the things oh no I know what it was it was on NPR last week there is a story on NPR about Jane Austen because there's a new biography of her that's coming out. Oh, I need to find that link. I completely forgot. Anyway, one of the things that they were talking about on the NPR little article, audio article that they did, was that Jane Austen, um, <laughs> she probably wasn't such an easy person to be around, really, because she was a wit, she was very sharp 
And, you know, sharp, smart people are often quite critical, she said, knowing exactly what that meant. <laughs> no, no, really, I'm very nice. But the, it was... It was interesting to hear someone who clearly loves Jane Austen not sit there and say, oh, she was so sweet and wonderful and what a sweet little woman who sat at home and read her books. No, she, she was quite um, decisive in the decisions that she made about people. And this chapter, the first one today, chapter nine, you're going to see that on display. So again, Persuasion is not one of her earlier books. Persuasion came later, and I really believe you can feel it in the tone and the tenor of her commentary, her social commentary. And uh, when she talks about the haters, don't be a hater, see? Hater, and it's spelled H-A-Y-T-E-R. When she talks about the haters in the Musgroves, listen to how she describes the families. Because unlike when we dealt with the Bennets, where they are poor, but we love them partly because they're poor, because it, it, you know, it, it makes them better people. You know, it's the whole, it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's uh, easier for us to see the strong backbone and self-reliance and resilient attitude and pride uh, that comes from hard work. In, in someone like the Bennets. And it is harder to see those good qualities in literature anyway, in someone like Mr. Darcy, who may not be as effusive, um, but is also rich. And so it's easy to just ascribe that to, well, he's snobby. Well, this, this chapter is different. So, so listen for that when she, she, and it's fairly early on in chapter nine when she talks about the haters in the Musgroves. Uh, once again, Mary is just a kick in the pants. Every, every time that woman opens her mouth, I just want to shriek and make other people listen to the audio because she's just so awful. Not hateful. See, and that's the interesting thing. I mean, talk about writing a fine line. Mary's not a hateful person. You don't walk away from her like in um, Sense and Sensibility, the, the sister-in-law, where you walk away from her really, truly disliking her. Mary's annoying, but she's also funny. Um, but boy, she is so well-written. And uh, oh, oh, on the vocabulary side of things, just in case uh, you need it, curate, C-U-R-A-T-E, that was an assistant to a vicar. And, uh, which means he, he wasn't, uh, uh, like full on clergy, but he is considered clergy. He's working for a, a victor or a rector. He's part of the parish. And, um, it actually comes from middle English, from medieval Latin. Who knew? And it comes from the, the Latin word care. So it's someone who's caring for part of the parish and the people in it. So that, that pops up. You need to know what a curate is. Uh, the, the other thing, as we move from chapter 9 into chapter 10, chap well, no, the end of chapter 9, something happens, I'm not going to tell you what, that concerns Captain Wentworth. There is a little description after, in this moment of tension between Anne and the, and the good captain, that I... It just struck me, and it struck me for this reason. Uh, there's so much 
And, you know, anytime I get together with any of you and we start talking about books we love and, and all this stuff, we all seem to be the kind of people who, it's not that we're nostalgic for an earlier time, necessarily. I mean, obviously, you're listening to a podcast. You, like me, are part of the 21st century. We are part of this online electronic age. Even if you're listening to this off of one of the CDs that you got off the website, it's still modern media that you're using. So it's it's not like I'm saying, you know, gosh, if only we could go back to using oil lanterns. That's not what I'm talking about. There was a... Not for everyone and not at every level, but there was a kind of gentility among, I suppose it was among certain classes, but it was, it was also, I think, just some people notice this more than others. And it seemed when I was young that this was something that was being inculcated into me and friends of my family and not so much into the people that I went to school with and the people around me and it was this there is a uh, I don't even know the word for it there's an there's an attitude whereby if you are in a social situation with someone else especially someone you don't know particularly well or someone you're friendly with but you're not really friends and they do something really ridiculously stupid you don't say anything about it. In fact, you act like you never noticed. You're at the dinner table and someone hits a piece of gristle and they have to spit it out on their plate. You just look the other way. Not snobbishly or snottily, but you, you look the other way because you don't want to embarrass them. It's, 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 not, it's, the, it's the not wanting to embarrass them. That's the part that's different. That's the part that's different. And that's something that you will see Anne be aware of and Captain Wentworth be aware of considerably, actually, um, through this book. That not, not wanting to put the other person in a uncomfortable position. And, and obviously, Wentworth and Anne are, are in nothing but uncomfortable positions, these two people. They... They were in love. She still clearly has feelings for him. They had to break up under um, appalling circumstances, not because they didn't love each other or because they weren't compatible, but because people were telling her that this was a bad match. Well, you can imagine how that felt for Captain Wentworth. To have Anne persuaded away from loving him, he thought. So, uh, their dynamic is fascinating, and it is not Darcy and Elizabeth. It's much more mature and, I think, in many ways, more heartbreaking. You will also hear Wentworth commenting on his attitude on, uh, he exposes his thoughts on those who are easily persuaded. And you just, he's going to make commentary like this all throughout the novel. It's just something to note and to know he's going to do again. You're going to hear him make comments about this for a while. We also get to see uh, more about the Crofts, uh, Admiral and Mrs. Croft, and, uh, and what a wonderful relationship they have. And again, this is, I mean, Jane Austen is way forward-thinking in the way that she portrays the Admiral and the Mrs., which is kind of cool, and, um, and certainly something to, 
to notice and and give her some credit for. The the other thing that I I found interesting, you're going to hear uh, a lot of discussion about the the young women, the eligible women flirting with the eligible men. And it watching small children, the tweenish children, not not necessarily when they uh, like like a girl likes a boy or a boy likes a girl or anything like that, but just when they, um, you know, they've said something funny and the adults have laughed and so they try saying it again and again and again because it's such a rush to have the adults laughing at a joke that they made. I mean, that's a big deal when you're a little kid. Um, or you, you do something that other people are impressed by and so you try and do it more or again or over and over. Um, it, it reminds me that my, my father said that the the uh, most common three last words that men say before they die are, hey, watch this. <laughs> Which seems to me to be so true. Uh, but it's, it's, it's interesting because that kind of look at me, look at me, look at me now kind of thing is, I don't know, is it hardwired into us or something? But you will see that with these with the girls that they are, I guess you could say just trying too hard. And it's interesting that here you've got Jane Austen who's showing us this, clearly being instructive about this. And it continues to happen. It's like, I don't know how you train girls not to do this or how you train boys not to you know, jump off the roof of the house to see if they can make it into the pool. I don't know. But it is interesting that it's not new. <laughs> And the the girls are really working it with Captain Wentworth. So it's kind of, you know, it's both fun. It's fun. It's funny. It's lighthearted. It is also one of those things that while I was listening to it, I went, huh, yeah, yeah, I kind of remember what that was like. And you look back and think, oh, man, what was I thinking? <sighs> so there. So that's pretty much it. I think that's all of the... I think that's all of the stuff you need to listen for. And uh, I'm just going to play the, the audio back to back. There's no reason for me to break in in the middle. It's, uh, it's two good chapters. They move along. And I think the, the action in them is really quite more than self-explanatory. But, uh, but that gives you a few things to listen for as we trot along through Persuasion by Jane Austen. Persuasion by Jane Austen. Chapter 9. Captain Wentworth was to come to Kellinchester to a home, to stay as long as he liked, being as thoroughly the object of the Admiral's fraternal kindness as of his wife's. He had intended, on first arriving, to proceed very soon into Shropshire and visit the brother settled in that country, but the attractions of Uppercross induced him to put this off. There was so much of friendliness and of flattery and of everything most bewitching in his reception there, the old was so hospitable, the young so agreeable, that he could not but resolve to remain where he was, and take all the charms and perfections of Edward's wife upon credit a little longer. It was soon up across with him almost every day. The Musgroves could hardly be more ready to invite than he to come, particularly in the morning, when he had no companion at home, for the Admiral and Mrs. Croft were generally out of doors together, interesting themselves in their new possessions, their grass and their sheep, and dawdling about in a way not endurable to a third person, or driving out in a gig, lately added to their establishment. 
Hitherto, there had been but one opinion of Captain Wentworth among the Musgroves and their dependencies. It was unvarying, warm admiration everywhere. But this intimate footing was not more than established when a certain Charles Hayter returned among them to be a good deal disturbed by it, and to think Captain Wentworth very much in the way. Charles Hayter was the eldest of all the cousins, and a very amiable, pleasing young man, between whom and Henrietta there had been a considerable appearance of attachment previous to Captain Wentworth's introduction. He was in orders, and having a curacy in the neighbourhood, where residence was not required, lived at his father's house, only two miles from Uppercross. A short absence from home had left his fair one unguarded by his attentions at this critical period, and when he came back he had the pain of finding very altered manners, and of seeing Captain Wentworth. Mrs. Musgrove and Mrs. Hayter were sisters. They had each had money, but their marriages had made a material difference in their degree of consequence. Mr. Hayter had some property of his own, but it was insignificant compared with Mr. Musgrove's, and while the Musgroves were in the first class of society in the country, the young Hayters would, from their parents' inferior, retired, and unpolished way of living, and their own defective education, have been hardly in any class at all. But for their connection with Uppercross, this eldest son, of course, excepted, who had chosen to be a scholar and a gentleman, and who was very superior in cultivation and manners to all the rest. The two families had always been on excellent terms, there being no pride on one side and no envy on the other, and only such a consciousness of superiority in the Miss Musgroves as made them pleased to improve their cousins. Charles's attentions to Henrietta had been observed by her father and mother without any disapprobation. It would not be a great match for her, but if Henrietta liked him—and Henrietta did seem to like him. Henrietta fully thought so herself, before Captain Wentworth came, but from that time Cousin Charles had been very much forgotten. Which of the two sisters was preferred by Captain Wentworth was as yet quite doubtful, as far as Anne's observation reached. Henrietta was perhaps the prettiest, Louisa had the higher spirits, and she knew not now whether the more gentle or the more lively character were most likely to attract him. Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove, either from seeing little, or from an entire confidence in the discretion of both their daughters, and of all the young men who came near them, seemed to leave everything to take its chance. There was not the smallest appearance of solicitude or remark about them in the mansion-house, but it was different at the cottage. The young couple there were more disposed to speculate and wonder, and Captain Wentworth had not been above four or five times in the Miss Musgrove's company, and Charles Hayter had but just reappeared, when Anne had to listen to the opinions of her brother and sister as to which was the one liked best. Charles gave it for Louisa, Mary for Henrietta, but quite agreeing that to have him marry either could be extremely delightful. Charles had never seen a pleasanter man in his life, and from what he had once heard Captain Wentworth himself say, was very sure that he had not made less than twenty thousand pounds by the war. Here was a fortune at once, besides which there would be the chance of what might be done in any future war, and he was sure Captain Wentworth was as likely a man to distinguish himself as any officer in the navy. Oh, it would be a capital match for either of his sisters. Upon my word it would, replied Mary. Dear me, if he should rise to any very great honours, if he should ever be made a baronet, Lady Wentworth sounds very well. That would be a noble thing indeed for Henrietta. She would take place of me then, and Henrietta would not dislike that. Sir Frederick and Lady Wentworth. It would be but a new creation, however, and I never think much of your new creations. It suited Mary best to think Henrietta the one preferred, on the very account of Charles Hayter, whose pretension she wished to see put an end to. She looked down very decidedly upon the haters, and thought it would be quite a misfortune to have the existing connection between the families renewed, very sad for herself and her children. "'You know,' 
said she. I cannot think him at all a fit match for Henrietta, and considering the alliances which the Musgroves have made, she has no right to throw herself away. I do not think any young woman has a right to make a choice that may be disagreeable and inconvenient to the principal part of her family, and be giving bad connections to those who have not been used to them. And pray who is Charles Hayter? Nothing but a country curate, a most improper match for Miss Musgrove of Uppercross. Her husband, however, would not agree with her here. For besides having a regard for his cousin, Charles Hayter was an eldest son, and he saw things as an eldest son himself. Now you are talking nonsense, Mary, was therefore his answer. It would not be a great match for Henrietta, but Charles has a very fair chance through the spices of getting something from the bishop in the course of a year or two, and you will please to remember that he is the eldest son. Whenever my uncle dies, he steps into very pretty property. The estate at Winthrop is not less than two hundred and fifty acres besides the farm near Taunton, which is some of the best land in the country. I grant you that any of them but Charles would be a very shocking match for Henrietta, and indeed it could not be. He is the only one that could be possible, but he is a very good-natured good sort of a fellow, and whenever Winthrop comes into his hands, he will make a different sort of place of it, and live in a very different sort of way, and with that property he will never be a contemptible man, good, freehold property. No, no, Henrietta might do worse than marry Charles Hayter, and if she has him and Louisa can get Captain Wentworth, I shall be very well satisfied. Charles may say what he pleases, cried Mary to Anne, as soon as he was out of the room, but it would be shocking to have Henrietta marry Charles Hayter, a very bad thing for her, and still worse for me, and therefore it is very much to be wished that Captain Wentworth may soon put him quite out of her head, and I have very little doubt that he has. She took hardly any notice of Charles Hayter yesterday. I wish you had been there to see her behaviour. And as to Captain Wentworth's liking Louisa as well as Henrietta, it is nonsense to say so, for he certainly does like Henrietta a great deal the best. But Charles is so positive. I wish you had been with us yesterday, for then you might have decided between us. And I am sure you would have thought as I did, unless you had been determined to give it against me. A dinner at Mr. Musgrove's had been the occasion when all these things should have been seen by Anne, but she had stayed at home under the mixed plea of a headache of her own and some return of indisposition in little Charles. She had thought only of avoiding Captain Wentworth, but an escape from being appealed to as an umpire was now added to the advantages of a quiet evening. As to Captain Wentworth's views, she deemed it of more consequence that he should know his own mind early enough not to be endangering the happiness of either sister, or impeaching his own honour, than that he should prefer Henrietta to Louisa, or Louisa to Henrietta. Either of them would, in all probability, make him an affectionate, good-humoured wife. With regard to Charles Hayter, she had delicacy which must be pained by any lightness of conduct in a well-meaning young woman, and a heart to sympathise in any of the sufferings it occasioned. But if Henrietta found herself mistaken in the nature of her feelings, the alternation could not be understood too soon. Charles Hayter had met with much to disquiet and mortify him in his cousin's behaviour. She had too old a regard for him to be so wholly estranged as might in two meetings extinguish every past hope, and leave him nothing to do but to keep away from Uppercross. But there was such a change as became very alarming, when such a man as Captain Wentworth was to be regarded as the probable cause. He had been absent only two Sundays, and when they parted, had left her interested, even to the height of his wishes, in his prospect of soon quitting his present curacy, and obtaining that of Uppercross instead. It had then seemed the object nearest her heart that Dr. Shirley, the rector, who for more than forty years had been zealously discharging all the duties of his office, but was now growing too infirm for many of them, should be quite fixed on engaging a curate, should make his curacy quite as good as he could afford, and should give Charles Hayter the promise of it. 
the advantage of his having come only to Uppercross, instead of going six miles another way, of his having, in every respect, a better curacy, of his belonging to their dear Dr. Shirley, and of dear good Dr. Shirley's being relieved from the duty which he could no longer get through without most injurious fatigue, had been a great deal, even to Louisa, but had been almost everything to Henrietta. When he came back, alas, the zeal of the business was gone by. Louisa could not listen at all to his account of a conversation which he had just held with Dr. Shirley. She was at a window, looking out for Captain Wentworth, and even Henrietta had at best only a divided attention to give, and seemed to have forgotten all the former doubt and solicitude of the negotiation. "'Well, I am very glad indeed. But I always thought you would have it. I always thought you sure. It did not appear to me that, in short, you know Dr. Shirley must have a curate, and you had secured his promise. Is he coming, Louisa?' One morning, very soon after the dinner at the Musgroves, at which Anne had not been present, Captain Wentworth walked into the drawing-room at the cottage, where were only herself and the little invalid Charles, who was lying on the sofa. The surprise of finding himself almost alone with Anne Elliot deprived his manners of their usual composure. He started, and could only say, "'I thought the Miss Musgroves had been here. Mrs. Musgrove told me I should find them here,' before he walked to the window to recollect himself, and feel how he ought to behave. "'They are upstairs with my sister.' They will be down in a few moments, I dare say, had been Anne's reply, in all the confusion that was natural, and if the child had not called her to come and do something for him, she would have been out of the room the next moment, and released Captain Wentworth as well as herself. He continued at the window, and after calmly and politely saying, I hope the little boy is better, was silent. She was obliged to kneel down by the sofa, and remain there to satisfy her patient, and thus they continued a few minutes, when to her very great satisfaction— she heard some other person crossing the little vestibule. She hoped, on turning her head, to see the master of the house. But it proved to be one much less calculated for making matters easy. Charles Hayter, probably not at all better pleased by the sight of Captain Wentworth than Captain Wentworth had been by the sight of Anne. She only attempted to say, "'How do you do? Will you not sit down? The others will be here presently.' Captain Wentworth, however, came from his window, apparently not ill-disposed for conversation— but Charles Hayter soon put an end to his attempts by seating himself near the table and taking up the newspaper, and Captain Wentworth returned to his window. Another minute brought another addition. The younger boy, a remarkable, stout, forward child of two years old, having got the door opened for him by someone without, made his determined appearance among them, and went straight to the sofa to see what was going on, and put in his claim to anything good that might be giving away. There being nothing to eat, he could only have some play— and as his aunt would not let him tease his sick brother, he began to fasten himself upon her, as she knelt, in such a way that, busy as she was about Charles, she could not shake him off. She spoke to him, ordered, entreated, and insisted in vain. Once she did contrive to push him away, but the boy had the greater pleasure in getting upon her back again directly. "'Walter,' said she, "'get down this moment. You are extremely troublesome. I am very angry with you.' "'Walter,' cried Charles Hayter, "'why do you not do as you are bid? Do not you hear your aunt speak?' "'Come to me, Walter. Come to Cousin Charles.' But not a bit did Walter stir. In another moment, however, she found herself in the state of being released from him. Someone was taking him from her, though he had bent down her head so much that his little sturdy hands were unfastened from around her neck, and he was resolutely borne away before she knew that Captain Wentworth had done it. Her sensations on the discovery made her perfectly speechless. She could not even thank him. She could only hang over little Charles with most disordered feelings— his kindness in stepping forward to her relief, 
the manner, the silence in which it had passed, the little particulars of the circumstance, with the conviction soon forced on her by the noise he was studiously making with the child, that he meant to avoid hearing her thanks, and rather sought to testify that her conversation was the least of his wants, produced such a confusion of varying but very painful agitation as she could not recover from, till, enabled by the entrance of Mary and the Miss Musgroves to make over her little patient to their cares, and leave the room. She could not stay. It might have been an opportunity of watching the loves and jealousies of the four, they were now all together, but she could stay for none of it. It was evident that Charles Hayter was not well inclined towards Captain Wentworth. She had a strong impression of his having said, in a vexed tone of voice, after Captain Wentworth's interference, "'You ought to have minded me, Walter. I told you not to tease your aunt,' and could comprehend his regretting that Captain Wentworth should do what he ought to have done himself.' but neither Charles Hayter's feelings nor anybody's feelings could interest her till she had a little better arranged her own. She was ashamed of herself, quite ashamed of being so nervous, so overcome by such a trifle. But so it was, and it required a long application of solitude and reflection to recover her. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 Other opportunities of making her observations could not fail to occur. Anne had soon been in company with all the four together often enough to have an opinion, though too wise to acknowledge as much at home, where she knew it would have satisfied neither husband nor wife. For while she considered Louisa to be rather the favourite, she could not but think, as far as she might dare to judge from memory and experience, that Captain Wentworth was not in love with either. They were more in love with him, yet there it was not love. It was a little fever of admiration— but it might, probably must, end in love with some. Charles Hayter seemed aware of being slighted, and yet Henrietta had sometimes the air of being divided between them. Anne longed for the power of representing to them all what they were about, and of pointing out some of the evils they were exposing themselves to. She did not attribute guile to any. It was the highest satisfaction to her to believe Captain Wentworth not in the least aware of the pain he was occasioning. There was no triumph, no pitiful triumph in his manner. He had probably never heard and never thought of any claims of Charles Hayter. He was only wrong in accepting the attentions, for accepting must be the word, of two young women at once. After a short struggle, however, Charles Hayter seemed to quit the field. Three days had passed without his coming once to Uppercross, a most decided change. He had even refused one regular invitation to dinner— and having been found on the occasion by Mr. Musgrove with some large books before him, Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove were sure all could not be right, and talked, with grave faces, of his studying himself to death. It was Mary's hope and belief that he had received a positive dismissal from Henrietta, and her husband lived under the constant dependence of seeing him to-morrow. Anne could only feel that Charles Hayter was wise." One morning about this time, Charles Musgrove and Captain Wentworth being gone a-shooting together, as the sisters in the cottage were sitting quietly at work, they were visited at the window by the sisters from the mansion-house. It was a very fine November day, and the Miss Musgroves came through the little grounds and stopped for no other purpose than to say that they were going to take a long walk, and therefore concluded Mary could not like to go with them and when Mary immediately replied, with some jealousy at not being supposed a good walker, "'Oh, yes, I should like to join you very much. I am very fond of a long walk.' Anne felt persuaded by the looks of the two girls that it was precisely what they did not wish, and admired again the sort of necessity which the family habit seemed to produce, of everything being to be communicated, and everything being to be done together, however undesired and inconvenient.' 
She tried to dissuade Mary from going, but in vain, and that being the case, thought it best to accept the Miss Musgrove's much more cordial invitation to herself to go likewise, as she might be useful in turning back with her sister and lessening the interference in any plan of their own. "'I cannot imagine why they should suppose I should not like a long walk,' said Mary as they went upstairs. "'Everybody is always supposing that I am not a good walker, and yet they would not have been pleased if we had refused to join them. When people come in this manner on purpose to ask us, how can one say no?' Just as they were setting off, the gentlemen returned. They had taken out a young dog who had spoilt their sport, and sent them back early. Their time and strength and spirits were, therefore, exactly ready for this walk, and they entered into it with pleasure.' Could Anne have foreseen such a junction, she would have stayed at home. But from some feelings of interest and curiosity, she fancied now that it was too late to retract, and the whole six set forward together in the direction chosen by the Miss Musgroves, who evidently considered the walkers under their guidance. Anne's object was not to be in the way of anybody, and where the narrow paths across the fields made any separations necessary to keep with her brother and sister. Her pleasure in the walk must arise from the exercise and the day, from the view of the last smiles of the year upon the tawny leaves and withered hedges, and from repeating to herself some few of the thousand poetical descriptions extant of autumn, that season of peculiar and inexhaustible influence on the mind of taste and tenderness, that season which had drawn from every poet worthy of being read some attempt at description or some lines of feeling. She occupied her mind as much as possible in such like musings and quotations, but it was not possible that when within reach of Captain Wentworth's conversation with either of the Miss Musgroves, she should not try to hear it. Yet she caught little very remarkable. It was mere lively chat, such as any young persons on an intimate footing might fall into. He was more engaged with Louisa than with Henrietta. Louisa certainly put more forward for his notice than her sister. This distinction appeared to increase, and there was one speech of Louisa's which struck her. After one of the many praises of the day, which were continually bursting forth, Captain Wentworth added, "'What glorious weather for the Admiral and my sister! They meant to take a long drive this morning. Perhaps we may hail them from some of these hills. They talked of coming into this side of the country. I wonder whereabouts they will upset to-day. Oh, it does happen very often, I assure you. But my sister makes nothing of it. She would as leave be tossed out as not.' "'Ah, you make the most of it, I know,' cried Louisa. But if it were really so, I should do just the same in her place. If I loved a man as she loves the Admiral, I would always be with him, nothing should ever separate us, and I would rather be overturned by him than driven safely by anybody else. It was spoken with enthusiasm. Had you, cried he, catching the same tone, I honour you. And there was silence between them for a little while. Anne could not immediately fall into a quotation again. The sweet scenes of autumn were for a while put by, unless some tender sonnet, fraught with the apt analogy of the declining year, with declining happiness, and the images of youth and hope and spring all gone together blessed her memory. She roused herself to say, as they struck by order into another path, "'Is not this one of the ways to Winthrop?' But nobody heard, or at least nobody answered her. Winthrop, however, or its environs, for young men are sometimes to be met with, strolling about near home, was their destination. And after another half-mile of gradual ascent through large enclosures, where the ploughs at work and the fresh-made path spoke the farmer counteracting the sweets of poetical despondence, and meaning to have spring again, they gained the summit of the most considerable hill, which parted Uppercross and Winthrop, and soon commanded a full view of the latter at the foot of the hill on the other side. 
Winthrop, without beauty and without dignity, was stretched before them in an indifferent house, standing low and hemmed in by the barns and buildings of a farmyard. Mary exclaimed, "'Bless me, here is Winthrop. I declare I had no idea. Well, now, I think we had better turn back. I am excessively tired.' Henrietta, conscious and ashamed, and seeing no cousin Charles walking along any path or leaning against any gate, was ready to do as Mary wished. But, no, said Charles Musgrove, and, no, no, cried Louisa more eagerly, and taking her sister aside, seemed to be arguing the matter warmly. Charles, in the meanwhile, was very decidedly declaring his resolution of calling on his aunt, now that he was so near, and very evidently, though more fearfully, trying to induce his wife to go too. But this was one of the points on which the lady showed her strength, and when he recommended the advantage of resting herself a quarter of an hour at Winthrop, as she felt so tired, she resolutely answered, "'Oh, no, indeed! Walking up that hill again would do her more harm than any sitting down could do her good.' And in short, her look and manner declared that go she would not. After a little succession of these sort of debates and consultations, it was settled between Charles and his two sisters that he and Henrietta should just run down for a few minutes to see their aunt and cousins, while the rest of the party waited for them at the top of the hill. Louisa seemed the principal arranger of the plan, and as she went a little way with them down the hill, still talking to Henrietta, Mary took the opportunity of looking scornfully around her and saying to Captain Wentworth, it is very unpleasant having such connections, but I assure you I have never been in the house above twice in my life." She received no other answer than an artificial assenting smile, followed by a contemptuous glance as he turned away, which Anne perfectly knew the meaning of. The brow of the hill where they remained was a cheerful spot. Louisa returned, and Mary, finding a comfortable seat for herself on the step of a stile, was very well satisfied, so long as the others all stood about her. But when Louisa drew Captain Wentworth away to try for a gleaning of nuts in an adjoining hedgerow, and they were gone by degrees quite out of sight and sound, Mary was happy no longer. She quarrelled with her own seat, was sure Louisa had got a much better somewhere, and nothing could prevent her from going to look for a better also. She turned through the same gate, but could not see them. Anne found a nice seat for her on a dry sunny bank under the hedgerow, in which she had no doubt of their still being in some spot or other. Mary sat down for a moment, but it would not do. She was sure Louisa had found a better seat somewhere else, and she would go on till she overtook her. Anne, really tired herself, was glad to sit down, and she very soon heard Captain Wentworth and Louisa in the hedgerow behind her, as if making their way back along the rough, wild sort of channel down the centre. They were speaking as they drew near. Louisa's voice was the first distinguished. She seemed to be in the middle of some eager speech. What Anne first heard was— and so I made her go. I could not bear that she should be frightened from the visit by such nonsense. What, would I be turned back from doing a thing that I had determined to do, and that I knew to be right by the airs and interference of such a person, or of any person, I may say? No, I have no idea of being so easily persuaded. When I have made up my mind, I have made it, and Henrietta seemed entirely to have made up hers to call at Winthrop today, and yet she was as near giving it up out of nonsensical complaisance. She would have turned back then, but for you? She would indeed. I am almost ashamed to say it. Happy for her to have such a mind as yours at hand. After the hints you gave just now, which did but confirm my own observations the last time I was in company with him, I need not affect to have no comprehension of what is going on. I see that more than a mere dutiful morning visit to your aunt was in question, 
and woe betide him, and her too, when it comes to things of consequence, when they are placed in circumstances requiring fortitude and strength of mind, if she have not resolution enough to resist idle interference in such a trifle as this. Your sister is an amiable creature, but yours is the character of decision and firmness, I see. If you value her conduct or happiness, infuse as much of your own spirit into her as you can. But this, no doubt, you have always been doing. It is the worst evil of too yielding and indecisive a character, that no influence over it can be depended on. You are never sure of a good impression being durable. Everybody may sway it. Let those who would be happy be firm. Here is a nut, said he, catching one down from an upper bough, to exemplify. A beautiful glossy nut, which, blessed with original strength, has outlived all the storms of autumn. Not a puncture, not a weak spot anywhere. This nut— he continued with playful solemnity, while so many of his brethren have fallen and been trodden underfoot, is still in possession of all the happiness that a hazelnut can be supposed capable of. Then returning to his former earnest tone, My first wish, for all whom I am interested in, is that they should be firm. If Louisa Musgrove would be beautiful and happy in her November of life, she will cherish all her present powers of mind. He had done, and was unanswered. It would have surprised Anne if Louisa could have readily answered such a speech. Words of such interest, spoken with such serious warmth. She could imagine what Louisa was feeling. For herself, she feared to move, lest she should be seen. While she remained, a bush of low, rambling holly protected her, and they were moving on. Before they were beyond her hearing, however, Louisa spoke again. "'Mary is good-natured enough in many respects,' said she. "'But she does sometimes provoke me excessively by her nonsense and pride—the Elliot pride. "'She has a great deal too much of the Elliot pride. "'We do so wish that Charles had married Anne instead. "'I suppose you know he wanted to marry Anne?' "'After a moment's pause, Captain Wentworth said, "'Do you mean that she refused him?' "'Oh, yes, certainly. "'When did that happen?' "'I do not exactly know, for Henrietta and I were at school at the time—' but I believe about a year before he married Mary. I wish she had accepted him. We should all have liked her a great deal better, and Papa and Mamma always think it was her great friend Lady Russell's doing that she did not. They think Charles might not be learned and bookish enough to please Lady Russell, and that therefore she persuaded Anne to refuse him. The sounds were retreating, and Anne distinguished no more. Her own emotions still kept her fixed. She had much to recover from before she could move. The listener's proverbial fate was not absolutely hers. She had heard no evil of herself, but she had heard a great deal of very painful import. She saw how her own character was considered by Captain Wentworth, and there had been just that degree of feeling and curiosity about her in his manner, which must give her extreme agitation. As soon as she could, she went after Mary, and having found and walked back with her to their former station by the stile, felt some comfort in their whole party being immediately afterwards collected, and once more in motion together. Her spirits wanted the solitude and silence which only numbers could give. Charles and Henrietta returned, bringing, as may be conjectured, Charles Hayter with them. The minutiae of the business Anne could not attempt to understand. Even Captain Wentworth did not seem admitted to perfect confidence here, but that there had been a withdrawing on the gentleman's side and a relenting on the ladies, and that they were now very glad to be together again, did not admit a doubt. Henrietta looked a little ashamed, but very well pleased. Charles Hayter exceedingly happy, and they were devoted to each other almost from the first instant of their all setting forward for Uppercross. Everything now marked out Louisa for Captain Wentworth. Nothing could be plainer. 
and where many divisions were necessary, or even where they were not, they walked side by side nearly as much as the other two. In a long strip of meadowland, where there was ample space for all, they were thus divided, forming three distinct parties, and to that party of the three which boasted least animation and least complaisance, Anne necessarily belonged. She joined Charles and Mary, and was tired enough to be very glad of Charles's other arm. But Charles, though in very good humour with her, was out of temper with his wife. Mary had shown herself disobliging to him, and was now to reap the consequence, which consequence was his dropping her arm almost every moment to cut off the heads of some nettles in the hedge with his switch. And when Mary began to complain of it, and lament herself being ill-used, according to custom, in being on the hedge-side, while Anne was never incommoded on the other, he dropped the arms of both, to hunt after a weasel which he had momentary glance of, and they could hardly get him along at all. This long meadow bordered a lane which their footpath at the end of it was to cross, and when the party had all reached the gate of exit, the carriage advancing in the same direction which had been some time heard was just coming up, and proved to be Admiral Croft's gig. He and his wife had taken their intended drive, and were returning home. Upon hearing how long a walk the young people had engaged in, they kindly offered a seat to any lady who might be particularly tired. It would save her a full mile, and they were going through Uppercross. The invitation was general, and generally declined. The Miss Musgroves were not at all tired, and Mary was either offended by not being asked before any of the others, or what Louisa called the Elliot Pride could not endure to make a third in a one-horse chaise. The walking party had crossed the lane and were surmounting an opposite stile, and the Admiral was putting his horse in motion again, when Captain Wentworth cleared the hedge in a moment to say something to his sister. This something might be guessed by its effects. "'Miss Elliot, I am sure you are tired,' cried Mrs. Croft. "'Do let us have the pleasure of taking you home. Here is excellent room for three, I assure you. If we were all like you, I believe we might sit four. You must, indeed you must.' Anne was still in the lane and though instinctively beginning to decline, she was not allowed to proceed. The Admiral's kind urgency came in support of his wife's. They would not be refused. They compressed themselves into the smallest possible space to leave her a corner, and Captain Wentworth, without saying a word, turned to her and quietly obliged her to be assisted into the carriage. Yes, he had done it. She was in the carriage, and felt that he had placed her there, that his will and his hands had done it that she owed it to his perception of her fatigue, and his resolution to give her rest. She was very much affected by the view of his disposition towards her which all these things made apparent. This little circumstance seemed the completion of all that had gone before. She understood him. He could not forgive her, but he could not be unfeeling. Though condemning her for the past, and considering it with high and unjust resentment, though perfectly careless of her, and though becoming attached to another, still he could not see her suffer without the desire of giving her relief. It was a remainder of former sentiment. It was an impulse of pure, though unacknowledged, friendship. It was a proof of his own warm and amiable heart, which she could not contemplate without emotions so compounded of pleasure and pain that she knew not which prevailed. Her answers to the kindness and the remarks of her companions were at first unconsciously given. They had travelled half their way along the rough lane before she was quite awake to what they said. She then found them talking of Frederick. "'He certainly means to have one or the other of those two girls, Sophie,' said the Admiral, "'but there is no saying which. He has been running after them too long enough, one would think, to make up his mind. "'Aye, this comes of the peace. If it were war now, he would have settled it long ago. "'We sailors, Miss Elliot, cannot afford to make long courtships in time of war. "'How many days was it, my dear, between the first time of my seeing you "'and our sitting down together in our lodgings at North Yarmouth? 
"'We had better not talk about it, my dear,' replied Mrs. Croft pleasantly. "'For if Miss Elliot were to hear how soon we came to an understanding, "'she would never be persuaded that we could be happy together. "'I had known you by character, however, long before. "'Well, and I had heard of you as a very pretty girl, "'and what were we to wait for besides? "'I do not like having such things so long in hand. "'I wish Frederick would spread a little more canvas, "'and bring us home one of these young ladies to Kellynch. "'Then there would always be company for them, "'and very nice young ladies they both are.' "'I hardly know one from the other.' "'Very good-humoured, unaffected girls, indeed,' said Mrs. Croft, in a tone of calmer praise, such as made Anne suspect that her keener powers might not consider either of them as quite worthy of her brother, and a very respectable family. One could not be connected with better people. "'My dear Admiral, that post! We shall certainly take that post!' But by coolly giving the reins a better direction herself, they happily passed the danger." and by once afterwards judiciously putting out her hand, they neither fell into a rut nor ran afoul of a dung-cart, and Anne, with some amusement at their style of driving, which she imagined no bad representation of the general guidance of their affairs, found herself safely deposited by them at the cottage. End of chapter 10 Isn't that a wonderful little moment of how they drive their carriage? I just love that because, you know, she's not being a backseat driver. She's helping. And he doesn't get upset. Here he is, this admiral. He's an admirable admiral, I guess. <laughs> so with that bad pun, I will leave you for the week. Don't forget the March Incentive book is So Liberated by Meg McElwee. And there's a link if you wanted to go peruse that. So anyone who donates in the month of March will be put into the drawing for the book. And with that, I will leave you. Take care. Have a great week. I will talk to you very soon. And we will listen to more Persuasion. Take care. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit and Knit Circus online magazine offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the fun spring issue at www.knitcircus.com And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlet supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlet.com Craftlet can also be accessed by its own iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.